Hi, I'm Hallie, and I want to welcome you to the Odd Life Podcast. That's spelled A-W-E-D, which stands for Awake, Well, and Empowered. In this space, you will hear inspirational stories, candid and heartfelt conversations, as well as advice from experts, all with the intention of helping women like you live odd AF. Because I believe the more of us that live awake, well, and empowered, the better this world will be. So thank you for being here and welcome to your odd life. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Odd Life Podcast. I'm Hallie, your host. I just got done having a fantastic chat with my next guest, Laura Munson. She is a best-selling author of two books, one called This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, and another called Willa's Grove. One is memoir and one is fiction. Uh, however, Laura's not just an author. She is someone that has obsessed about writing her entire life and has made it her occupation. And not everyone gets to say that they've done that. She even found herself going viral before viral was a thing. She would have written an article for the Modern Love column in the New York Times. It was called, Those Are Not Fighting Words, Dear. It was about what she was dealing with in her marriage at the time. And she had so many comments that actually shut down the New York Times website when it launched. And it was actually from part of her book that she had just written and was trying to get published. So needless to say, there was tons of interest after that in her book, and that launched her as a published author. But Laura is so much more than that. She's also a teacher. And eventually she created the Haven Writing Retreat. And this is well-known in the United States. It comes highly recommended. They are retreats that she leads to help women mostly. She has other individuals that come as well. Mostly women tend to gravitate towards her retreats. She helps them find their voice. We get into all that, how she does that, why it's important to her. And she does this in a beautiful place she gets to call home. She lives in Montana, just outside of Glacier National Park. I can't think of a better place to go to be away from all that you know and to immerse yourself in a place where you're just yourself and nature and the words that are inside of you. So listen to this conversation. I hope it inspires you. You don't have to be a writer to appreciate this conversation. I think this can apply to anything that you do in life that you are passionate about or you obsess with. And Laura just happened to turn it into a career and I can't wait for you to listen. So here's my conversation with bestselling author, Laura Munson. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. I am just thrilled to finally meet you via this platform. I've been a fan of yours for many years. I didn't even know when I first met you online, but it's been, I think, through the Twitter space or something, maybe blogging. I'm not sure, but I'm just so thrilled that you're here to talk about all of the things that you're about. And I, I've given the audience a little bit about your bio already, so they already know who you are. But I want to get into you as a writer. Tell me about your writing life. Where did this love for writing come for you? And was the thing you always wanted to do? And when did you decide you wanted to do this for a living and make this your occupation? Well, that's a question that I love to answer. But I first want to say thank you for oh, following me along, having me on the show. Yeah. And while we've never met before, you know, I think um, people who are putting similar messages out into the world find each other. And so yeah. Like, you know, I feel like we already know each other. Like we said, <laughs> we do. I know we before just jumped in the conversation like, oh, hey, what's going on? Like we've, like we've done this before. <laughs> like, Hi, handshake. It's just like, yeah. hello, kindred sister. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So um, your message, ah, awake, well, and empowered. 
is probably my best way of answering your question, which mm. is, I think when we're children, we are very much in touch with our awe, our wonder, our curiosity. And it's not just a fluffy idea. And for some reason, writing always was the place where my awe was safe. Yeah. And so like I have, I'm in my office right now in my studio, my new writing studio. I love it. It's gorgeous. And I have 24 unpublished books like on a (laughs) stack over (laughs) there. And I have many, many journals going back to fourth grade. So I never thought I'd be a writer. I wanted to be an actress. That's what I studied in school and college. And then at the very, very end, I took a screenplay class and my professor said, you don't know how to write screenplay, but by the way, you're a novelist. Oh gosh. (laughs) And I thought, I don't want to live that life. Are you kidding me? Sitting alone in a room someplace, you know, staring (laughs) at a blank screen or a blank page. Um, But that was in 88 when I graduated from college. And I just decided I'm just going to cut my teeth on life. I got into a really great MFA program and I thought, what do I know? I'm 21. I probably have like a a bunch of maybe coming of age stories in me at best. So instead, I just, much to my parents' dismay, um, took any kind of odd job that I could that would not tempt me away from living the writing life. And I have sat at that intersection of heart and mind and craft that is the writing life since then. And I've written lots of unpublished books. Some of them are good. And I've got three that I'm finishing up right now, actually this weekend, and um, hope to get those published. But to me, it's not ultimately about getting published. It's about living in a way that helps you find what it is that you have to say. And that is with the awe that you teach and that um, the message that you're putting out into the world. And I am too. So I think in that way, we're also so aligned, Hallie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, when you say you were going to college for this one thing and, and you ended up doing something else, what was your support? I mean, you said your parents obviously were a little like, are you serious? But what's that like when you're, when you're shifting? Because I think we're taught Especially, I think our generation, you study this and you go down this path and this is what you do. You don't diverge from that. What was it like for you to go against the grain and go down this road of maybe where you weren't planning on? Was it hard to have support? Did you have uh, struggles internally with all that? Because I think that's sometimes what people go through when they want to make a change. They're doing something they're not feeling really in line with, but then now they want to go this direction. And it's hard when you're bucking against people that are telling you, why are you doing that? Like, what was that like for you at that time? I don't know one writer on the planet who has somebody in their life saying, you really need to write. It's very rare. And even if there are people in your life saying, oh, you got a book in you, you know, it's usually then once you actually start living the writing life, people say, why are you writing? (laughs) Because there are no promises. Even if you've got like a two book deal from Random House, ultimately you're the one that has to sit down and do the work. Mm-hmm. And, and so I've worked very hard to develop an inner champion. We all have that inner critic. Everybody, no matter what they do has that inner judge. And what I've learned is that that inner voice, which I call the inner critter, I just wrote a whole book about it is actually a scared child who mm-hmm. lives inside of us and who knows exactly what to say to break our heart. And the, what I've learned is that the meaner that inner critter is, the, the more scared she is. And yeah. so I'm a mom. I'm not sure if you're a mom, but um, my kids are grown up now. But when they were little, if they came into my room in the middle of the night freaking out because they were having some sort of a nightmare or like a night haunt, 
they would say really scary stuff to me, you know, and they could be very physical too. And I'm not going to say, beat it, get out of here. It was like, oh, you're having a bad dream. Let's walk you back to your room. I'll sit here next to you and rub your back. And they go to sleep. And that's how I treat that inner critic. And I really try with my clients because I lead writing retreats and work with lots and lots of people. And that's the number one block is getting over that kind of how do you show up? And then once you do so, how do you do it kindly? Um, The more we think about that inner critic, no matter what it is that you do as a scared child, the easier it is to understand her and to let her take that nap that needs to happen in order for us to go into our creative self-expression, wherever that is, whether you're a fiber artist or a painter or a writer. But let's remember that everything we do, every word that comes out of our mouth is an act of creation. One of the things that's really important to me, and I think part of how I've kept going all these years is that, sure, I'm writing, that's what I've chosen. But it's really about what's behind the writing. And if we can start tapping into the fact that everything we do is an act of creation, every word that comes out of our mouth, the way we decorate our living room, whatever it is, like, do we put on earrings or not? You know, everything we do is creative. So it's not in its own slot. Life is about creating and co-creating. And for me, writing is just my way to that end, but it's ultimately not about the writing. It's about what's behind it and what's in between the words and then what's left in their wake. Mm, I love that. Well, you know, there's one thing to do that, but to, to cultivate that strength, uh, to be able to silence that inner critter, like where did that come from for you? Does that something you've always had that, or do you feel like something you had to grow into and, and learn along the way, like just a process of evolution for you or where did that come from? You know, I've thought about this a lot. And I just finished a book um, about writing and then another book about what we're talking about, about awe and wonder and what's behind creativity. And I really, I could talk and talk and talk about it, but the truth is, and it's not very elegant, it's obsession. I'm really obsessed. I think that at a certain point when you start to cultivate a practice and a craft around it can turn into obsession. And it can also be really, really detrimental to your health. And that's a big part of why I lead Haven Writing Retreats and do all these different writing programs, because I'm trying to eradicate the tortured artist paradigm. Mm-hmm. and replace it with what you're doing get getting people into finding an empowered way to live their life and everybody has a voice no one has a voice like you do it's not possible even if we try to me writing is my way in but it's really about standing in that place of awe and then attracting the people who support that and that that doesn't necessarily mean it's family or friends it's often the, like you you and I have never met but there's a connection here yeah. And that's what I tell people to find, you know, find people who understand this commitment. And then if they want to be, I call us word wanderers, <laughs> those of yeah. us who write, you know, if you want to turn that into prose or poetry, then that's extra, but it's really living again in a way that helps you find what it is that you have to say. Yeah. It's like not a choice, right? It's not a choice that this inner voice, it's, it's a way to push you, maybe even using it in a positive way sometimes rather than looking at the negative side. How do, how can you use it to, to push you to do the thing you need to do? Because there's times I'm sure you get down, you've submitted an article and, and nothing gets published, you get a lot of rejections. I love the fact that we can actually take that inner and make it your best friend. Like, hey, you've got this, let's go. Rather than 
making it always a negative thing. I've heard people say that the way to picture your inner critic is like a person sitting next to you on the couch. Would you would you allow that person to talk to you that way? Absolutely not. And so what do you want to hear instead? Do you want to hear encouragement? And sometimes we try and look on the outside for this and it's it's not going to happen. We just people don't get us. They don't get the life. They don't understand sitting in the chair for 8 hours a day, whatever it is that you do. And to have yourself be your best cheerleader, I think is super important when things are tough and when it's hard, because you, like you said, you've got the why behind what you're doing. It's the in-between spaces of the writing that, that matter. And no one really quite gets it probably like you do. And so there's really uh, a positive to maybe hearing yourself because you're the one that knows what it's going to take to move forward. That makes any sense. It makes all kinds of sense. And I always say writing is my practice my prayer, my meditation, my way of life, and sometimes my way to life. Mm -hmm. And so the book with the horseshoe over there behind me is the memoir that I got published called This Is Not the Story You Think It Is. I had only focused on learning the craft of fiction, studying it, you know, and if you're out there and you want to write, your best teachers are on your bookshelf and yeah. study, 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 and never loan your books out to anybody. Underline, commit yes. book graffiti, which is like, th- that's your, that's your teaching right there. And so I strictly believe that if we get into the writing, it becomes a way of breathing. Mm-hmm. And again, nobody asks us to do it, but it's just a way to that awe that you teach. Yeah, It's just anything can be that. It's just for me, it's writing. Yeah. And I think this is something that people get wrong is that you have to be an excellent writer to write. I think you've mentioned this when we were talking a little bit, is that writing is just a way of finding your voice. And I think it's really cathartic. Even if you're just writing in a journal and you end up ripping it up and burning all the pages, I think writing is such an intimate way to communicate with yourself. It's it's a way I problem solve a lot of times through journaling or however you, if you want to say diary journal, whatever that is, even if that's the only writing that you do, I think it's so important because it's such a great tool to get to know yourself and find your voice. And when you go back and read it, if you do keep them and read them, it's amazing. You'll go, oh my gosh, I wrote that. It's kind of almost, you go into a different place and you don't realize that's you because I think sometimes we hear everything else that comes at us. And when we actually sit in the quiet and just write our own words of what's coming up just organically, it's pretty amazing what you actually find out about yourself. Do you find that to be true as well? So a lot of my clients, like on the first day of Haven, I'll ask, because I don't teach journal writing. I have a journal writing practice that sure. that I do with my clients. But I'll say, how many of you write in your journal? And people will be like, and then I'll say, really? How many of you really write in your journal? Yeah. Like right now? And they'll yeah. be like, mm. <laughs> And then I'll say, how many of you used to write in your journal? Ah! And so what I think happens is that when we're young, angsty, teenage, I mean, my, I literally have my journals back, like I think I said, to fourth grade, we need to get it out. Yeah. And then what happens, I think in many cases is that we habituate a certain way of thinking, a certain thought pattern. And that often when we grab the journal, we're in that thought pattern, in that angsty place, we're full of rage or we're full of fear. That's usually why we reach for the journal. And then what often happens is we get right back into that habituated thought pattern. And so what I'm trying to teach people is, sure, use writing, journal writing 
to get it out, be in the act of creation, and then come back in with a more analytical mind and read what you've written and notice whether that thought pattern is serving you or not. And that's a very subjective concept, right? Like, what's serving us? Because if all we ever do is rage, and then we open up that journal, and there we are raging, then that might feel good or like it's serving us. But often, if you really step back and ask yourself, is this is this rage really good for me? Yeah. And and if the answer is no, then maybe it's time to try a different sort of thought pattern. If If we never rage, if we say we're finding the grocery store when we're really bleeding inside and suddenly we do rage on the page. Well, then that to me probably means it is serving you. So the writing is just a tool, um, whether it ends up becoming a novel or a memoir or a poem, whatever it is, a song, then that's between the perceiver of what we've written and the work, but to get your finger on the pulse of what's behind it. And you were to me, that's everything. So Ultimately, it's got to be about your relationship with yourself. And you were talking about voice earlier. You know, people throw that phrase around all the time, like find your voice. I throw that phrase around as well. What does that even mean? And to me, it is about being in that flow state, being in that meditative waking trance that is the writing life. And it's ultimately then about what's behind it. And so when people say, how do I know if I'm in my voice? Well, it's like when you lose track of hours. You know, I know, you know, it's not that it's easy material because usually when we're writing, it's about difficult stuff usually. Um, But it's when we really lose track of kind of what's on our to-do list and our stack of bills and, and just be in that space of ease and flow that to me is the true and pure act of creativity, whatever that means for each person. And that's what I'm really trying to teach. And that's the way I live. Not to be dramatic, but I honestly don't know how to live without writing. I get that. And that's amazing. I think that's actually something that sounds like a bit like heaven because this is exactly who you are and what you're meant to do here. And and, uh, to to be able to find that and know that from a very early age, I think is really... (laughs) amazing because how many of us have gone through, I think that's what the whole midlife crisis is all about because we're maybe done something for someone we didn't really feel good in our hearts about, or maybe it's just, it no longer feels good. And then we have to go find out what is the thing. And you've known it from the very beginning. You've been writing since you're young, but I think doing this now for a living, it's, I think that's a huge gift that you've given yourself that many people don't do. Well, and let's be totally honest. I mean, sure. I'm a three-time whatever on paper, um, bestselling author. But the truth is that every author I know also does something else. Yeah. Supplement their income because it's very, very rare that even with those credentials that you're making money off of your books. And I mean, honestly, it's like Stephen King, Margaret Atwood, you know, people that are household names. And I'm just where I really consider myself lucky is that I'm able to also be a teacher and an editor. And those are things that I truly love. Not every writer has those skills. So a lot of people that I work with go into creative fields like advertising or like what you're saying, they would enjoy a paycheck and health benefits. Yes. (laughs) So they get out of college and sure they want to write books, but instead they go into something that, you know, they can actually secure an income by doing. And then they hit like around 50 and they're like, okay, I want to write that book. Yeah. 
And there are no promises that you're going to get that book finished, published, or make any money off of it. But it's, I hate to say it again, but it is an obsession. Well, you know, there's probably worse things to be obsessed about, right? (laughs) It's just that it's a lot of sitting. And so if you're going to live a healthy writing life, and this is something I'm a huge advocate for, it means that writing isn't just writing. It means sometimes you're moving your body around. You're taking an intentional walk. Writing can be making soup. It can be brushing your teeth. If you're living in an intentional way, writing is with you all the time. And then, you know, sure, it comes down to putting pen to paper or banging on a keyboard, but it's living in a certain way. And that's what I'm really teaching and how I've really lived. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. Going back to your early life. So you've decided to not doing screenplays, you're going to be a novelist or writing and you're doing all these other odd jobs to make make rent. Tell us about what you were writing back then. Like what did writing life look like when you first started out? It's funny that you should ask um, <laughs> because I, I I won't show you right now, but literally I have like 20 boxes of books right over there. Yeah. And the other day I thought, well, why don't I just read one of those things? Because I most writers I know don't go back and read their stuff. Like I never go back and read even my journals. And so I grabbed one and I started to read it and I thought, this is good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is really good. And I wrote it before I was published to wide acclaim. Like I'd been published in literary journals and stuff. And I, I read it and I saw a level of purity in it that I'm not going to say that my current writing doesn't have that level of purity. But now as a teacher, a lot of what I'm writing is about how to write. But like there was a darkness to it and an edge and a freedom because I didn't have readers yet. And so I've been working on it the last few weeks and I'm going to get that thing published. I love it. But it, I wrote it, I wrote it in the early nineties actually. And, um, and also the internet wasn't around yet. Yeah. And I didn't have a cell phone yet. So I, I, I wonder if it'll be relevant. It's just that I think that when you don't have an agenda, when you don't have readers, when you don't, when when there's like nowhere to get, there's a level of purity that I don't know if you can get back. I hope you can. I hope you can. But once you start having critics, publishers, agents, readers, I'm not going to say it corrupts it, but it does take away that, that innocence. Sure. And, And I don't know how to... I don't know how to teach my way back to that, but it was really great to meet myself there. And I I miss that. I miss her. So post-college writing, you were writing novels right out the gate? Because you said you've been published in literary publications. So was it to just get published at all? Or was there something, a message that you wanted to get at? What was the thing that that you were writing most about? Was there a topic or was it the fiction that you were focusing on? Well, I love fiction, even though I'm actually probably better known for nonfiction. But um, to me, fiction is distilled reality. It's like realer than real. And what I love about fiction is that you're not beholden to what actually happened. So that I think every writer, even if it's in your journal, is mining their life on some level. Even if you're writing a dystopian fantasy and world building, it's still somehow of you. And what I love about fiction is that you can play with reality, but you're still in so doing actually going even deeper into what you care about. So one of the things that, I don't know, I've said this since I was, since I was 21 and began my first novel when people would say, why are you writing? You know, cause it's inconvenient for a lot of your family and friends. Like really, can't you go do something that's normal? And I would just say, because I'm fascinated by the things people do to each other. 
And yeah. and I think that writers on any level are students of the human being. And so to me, that's just my way of studying the human being. And to me, fiction, I'm not that interested in being the main character. Yeah. I'm much more interested in creating a character who's way more screwed up than I'll ever be, (laughs) or way more um, curious about things that I wouldn't necessarily have the courage to be curious about, to walk down that dark alley. I was working on a book a a few years ago, and I'm going to return to it after I finish these books about writing, where where in the main character, she's bad to the bone. Yeah. She's bad to the bone. And I went back to read that, and I've got about 150 pages. And like, you just feel this like, hunger for it. I want to walk around in her shoes. Writing is a radical act of empathy, whether it's with fictional characters or not. And I think also I present in my life in a very positive, healthy, supportive way, given my role, uh, being a writing teacher, coach, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to explore the dark edges in my own work. Yeah. So maybe it's a relief in a way. Yeah, that's very cool. So you start writing novels and then you got into being a mother, you got married, had kids, right? So how did that affect your writing, being a mom? Did you take a back seat to writing? Was it still like, I'm doing both? How did you manage to do both things? That's why I sadly use the word obsession because I mean, there are a million reasons why people should stop writing, but I've never not written. It's just, again, it's like the way I breathe. So when I had small children, when I was going through a divorce, when my father died and I lived with him in the ICU for a month, and then the aftermath of that, like I've never not written. And I don't prescribe that to everybody. That's a but part of why I said it, it's it's a way of living it doesn't always mean that you put pen to paper, but it's not really a choice for me. And I know that's an obnoxious answer, um, but you know, listen, anyone who's giving you ten easy steps or write your book in a month or I, I kind of want to say run for the hills because yeah. there's no recipe, there's no formula, and a lot of writing teachers we compare notes. The ultimate truth is that you can't really teach somebody to write. You can teach them the craft. You can help their mindset around writing, but it comes down to you being your own champion. And that's why probably the most important thing I can teach is how to be your own inner champion in this way. Because again, nobody asks you to write. In fact, I had people after the memoir came out who housed me on my book tour who knew me in high school say, why did you write that book? Why would you expose yourself? And I'm somebody who writes and teaches and lives from the inside out, not the other way. I'd probably be a a wealthier woman (laughs) um, in the way of currency than I am because if I was more strategic about those like 10 easy steps and tips and tricks, it's just not who I am. So I write because I have to. And then if it ends up out in the world and helps somebody, then I guess it's worth it. But it ultimately has got to be about how the writing serves you. Yeah. So let's go back to that for a second. You mentioned the memoir. So first off, though, there was an essay that you wrote for the Modern Love column for New York Times. It was called, Those, Those Aren't Fighting Words. Fighting dear. Words here. Yes, yeah. Dear. So tell me about that article. What prompted you to write that and send that in? Because that's a nonfiction. That's about your own life. Tell us a little bit about that article and what happened from there. 
So for any of you out there who want to write um, creative nonfiction and you want to study the short form version of it, the personal essay, the place to go to study is the modern love column in the Sunday style section of the New York Times. It's really, I think, the destination for the personal essay. There are other places too, but modern love, it sounds fluffy. It's not. Dan Jones, to whom I owe my career, is an incredible editor. And he understands that a personal essay should be scene driven because we live our life in scenes, not premise driven, like we're taught in in school when it comes to the essay. That's just a side note. But to that end, everybody who writes creative nonfiction short form wants to be published in that column. And I had been rejected by Dan a bunch of times. And it's a very hard nut to crack because it is so well-respected. I had written the memoir because again, like I said, writing is sometimes my, my way to life. I'd gone through a marital crisis and I'd written my way through it. Yes, in my journal, that book is not a journal uh, entry, but I, I crafted it as a book because I thought, you know, I've learned a lot about emotional liberation by way of rejection as a writer and just in life. So I think I know some things about like there is a gap between the things people say and do to us and our reaction emotionally to those things. And so I thought, well, I'm being met with great rejection in my marriage. I don't love you anymore. Not sure I ever did. I'm done. And I could have freaked out and said, I'm going to drag your sorry self to therapy and could have threatened with the children and all that stuff that people do when they're that afraid. But instead I said, well, I don't buy it. I think that this is a crisis of self brought on by career failure. And what can we do to give you the distance that you need uh, versus taking down all that we've created out here in Montana. We're both from big cities, Chicago, New York. We met in college. Like we, you know, it was a big deal to move out here and build a home, this home that I, in which I am now sitting. And he could have said nothing later. I'm out of here. But instead he took that space. So personally, I gave myself six months. And then it wasn't like game over after six months. But my job in those days, in those months was to get out of his way so that he could really look at what was going on. I felt that it was deeply about his relationship with self. So I wasn't going to put up with just anything. I wasn't going to endure serious abuse, nor would I accept any kind of bad behavior on my kids' part. But I, I took that that six months to live in a very deliberate way, applying this philosophy. It wasn't a strategy to stay married. And that book was published in nine different countries in that essay, which I'll just finish the story in a second. Like it went totally crazy viral. It came out in 2009. I still hear from people almost every week and people use it as a recipe to stay married. That's never what it was about. It was about how to find emotional liberation during a time of great crisis and rejection. I wrote my way through that six months and I finished the book. And at the end of it, I already had a literary agent and I sent it to her and I said, you know, I've never written memoir, but I think there's something in here. And she said, Laura, you've worked so hard on fiction. You're a fiction writer. I love this book, but I just don't know how I can get this published without any kind of fiction platform. Why don't you try to get the short version of it published? And I was like, okay, (laughs) where help, you know? And she said, I don't know, but I'm not going to send it out until you build some sort of a nonfiction platform. She said, everybody reads the modern love column. 
So I literally, in an act of complete surrender, I actually, in that moment, I wrote down my author statement and I wrote down these words and they're still on my computer. I write to shine a light on a dim or otherwise pitch black corner to provide relief for myself and others. And I thought, really? Relief? From what? And then I thought, ah, this beautiful and heartbreaking thing called life for myself and others. So I'm I'm of service to self and others. And I have to believe that getting that intentional had something to do with the fact that in one hour before I, I had to pick up my kids at school, I banged out that essay. I did not even edit it. I don't even think it's that good, but somehow Dan Jones took it after rejecting again, a handful of essays for modern love. And the day it was published in the New York times, God, there were like three clicks on my blog that morning. And by the end, there were 3000. The Oprah show was calling Good Morning America, The View, The Today Show. I didn't have a book deal, but I had an agent and I was a real writer. I mean, a book writer and the book was done. So a lot of people think that I wrote that essay and then the then the yeah. book, but it was the other way around. So that Monday, she went out with the book. And suddenly I went from being a total beggar to choosing between the great and almighty Amy Einhorn, who is now the president of Harper, I think, and the editor of The Kite Runner. And suddenly I had this big advance and it just, it just goes to show you that just because the world doesn't, wherever you are in your world, just because the world by society's constructs doesn't accept you. If you go to the heart of what you have to say, whether it's verbally or with a written word, it can transcend oceans and social groups and age and, and meet somebody from your little corner of the world to theirs. And to me, that's the power of the written word. So without the response, I'm told that the response to that essay shut down the New York Times website. Oh my gosh. I know. And so I, I just have to believe in the power of the people in that way that we're all craving honest self-expression. And a lot of people don't have the courage to be honest about where they really are in life. And maybe, maybe out of all things, maybe behind obsession, maybe it's just that I've always given myself permission to be transparent. Yeah. It's, it's vulnerability, radical empathy. These are the things I care about. And I think you do too, right? I mean, I, I do. Feel like, I do. Yeah. Well, and then the question I have for you about this whole process is that you go through this, you do this, this article, and then you've got the book and it's all of a sudden blowing up. Your friends are like, why did you do this? Well, you're exposing yourself. But at the same time, this is your truth. And this is what you're going through. And this is the world that you're living in. And this is what you needed to share what did you learn from that process? Whether it's about the people that were in your life, society, or just learning about yourself, was this something that was pretty cathartic for you? Or do you feel like it was just part of the process of being a writer and just what you do? Ah, so many different ways to answer that. Um, as a writing teacher, I will flip it into almost a cautionary tale. And then I'll go to the more positive side of it. If you're going to expose yourself, you really have to know why and how to protect yourself in so doing. So many of my clients just have like a big story to tell and people in their lives are saying, you got to write this book. I will say to them, if you're going to have that message, first of all, let's get our finger on the pulse of what the message is. 
let's set that up and then have it be the through line throughout what you write. And I'm really good at helping people structure books because especially memoirs are very difficult to structure because you don't want it just to be like your whole life story. Then this happened, then this happened. That's an autobiography. But even so, I would say let's structure it like a a memoir, um, which should read like a novel starring you as the main character. Now, do you want to be the poster child for that message? And for me, I just, I never really thought the book was going to get published. I wrote it as a structured memoir, but when it was published in nine different countries, it was six years of my life. And I was on the major women's speaking circuit and traveling all over the world. It was published in China and Korea and Australia and all over Europe. And, and it was fascinating again going back to as a writer we are um like students of the human psyche the human being it was fascinating because in australia they completely got the message they knew it was not a recipe about staying together and then i was actually on the speaking circuit when the marriage ended and it was actually freeing to be able to say hey listen the marriage ended the message is the same about, you know, you can choose your own well-being no matter what's going on around you emotionally. And the UK, no way. They absolutely, like if you Google that book in the UK, there's pictures of like a, a man in a tuxedo with handcuffs attached to the kitchen sink and a wife with like a wooden rolling pin <laughs> lording it over him. Like yeah. American woman wouldn't let her husband divorce her. It's like, well, what? And that was the opposite of the message. In fact, I was asked to go on Oprah twice and I love Oprah. I mean, who doesn't? But the, the shows were about couples staying together. And that was the opposite of my message. So there are not a lot of writers I know who um, say no to the O, but I yeah. did twice. So this goes back to like, if you're going to write about yourself, you got to know what the message is. And then you have to be congruent with that message and have total integrity around it. I want to credit you for the fact that you you did it because you were basically standing up for yourself. You were, you were speaking from a perspective that was you not just taking whatever he was saying and going with it. You were going with what was in your heart and what you believed and stating with your voice what your thoughts were. And I think so many women can lose their voice in a marriage, especially because they don't really know where they stand anymore because they have been part of a partnership for so long and lost their way. And it was refreshing to realize that you hadn't lost your way. You were standing strong on what you believe, your foundation of who you were as a person. And that I think is exactly what I'm talking about with being awake, well, and empowered is that you stood there in all that you knew who you were and didn't let his narrative influence you. You had your own narrative of what you thought was happening and we're going to stand up for it. And I think that was why it was to me so powerful. And to get on the other side of here's the cautionary tale, if you're going to expose yourself, I always tell my, my clients and students, we have to invite ourselves to write past the fear of exposure for ourselves. But if we do want that message to get out in the world, it does require a certain level of courage and not taking people's reactions personally. And if you go into into the comments from that essay, you'll see just as much hate as love because a lot of people didn't want that message. A lot of people need to walk around 
pointing the finger at other people and saying, she did me wrong. He did me wrong. Therefore I'm a victim. Therefore I am justified in playing victim. And they don't want to hear that you actually, short of somebody punching you in the face and getting a black eye, that's different. That's physical abuse, but emotional abuse, we have choices. And a lot of people don't want that message. But I will say, if you're somebody out there who <clears throat> wants to write personal essay or memoir, here's just a beautiful, beautiful little bridge that it can build. I heard from a lot of people from that essay and the book. And the one that landed most in my heart was an email I got from a woman. And she said, so entry point, married woman with two kids going through this crisis, let's say. This woman said, I am a blind woman from Tel Aviv, Israel. I've never been married, nor have I had children. So already do you see, it's like whatever you write can transcend so much. But I heard about your book and I downloaded it and I listened to it this weekend and it helped me get over the greatest loss of my life. And that was the death of my seeing eye dog to cancer. Oh my gosh. So if you're wondering if what you have to say matters, and I remember writing that thing thinking, oh, whatever, it's just like some woman who grew up with a certain level of privilege in the United States of America, who cares about my stupid marital crisis. But I think that, that when you expose exactly who you are and are honest about it and emotionally responsible about it, not trauma dumping, info dumping, but really trying to be a seeker on the page, it can transcend oceans and social groups and age and culture and religion, all of it. And it can relate with somebody who has a very different life than your own, but the message can be the same. Yeah. And that to me, if you're wondering, does my little story matter? Yeah, it does because yeah. nobody's lived your life and nobody can tell it like you can. And, you know, even taking the writing out of this, just you as a person showing up and being able to do that and say this to your husband, where did that come from? Is that how, how you've always been just knowing the truth of the situation and saying, this isn't how this is going to go? Because I think sometimes we can get influenced by that group think a little bit and not realizing what do I really feel about the situation or this is how I'm supposed to react for you to actually react and say what you said and to take this into a, like a direction no one else has really a, probably ever done in that situation. Tell me about how you got to that point. Cause that's probably even where people or women may be struggling is I don't know if I have the strength to do that. Like, where did that come from for you? I think a lot of it came from therapy. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Um, I, I've worked hard in my life to be very conscientious of, about that inner critter that we all have, you know, like you were saying, the voice next to you on the couch, like most of us wouldn't treat our worst enemies the way that we treat ourselves in our own mind. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I definitely got very sick of that inner critter and hired a therapist. And she's in that, that memoir, actually, she's mm -hmm. thanked at the end of it. But Talk therapy for me doesn't work anymore because I've talked it mostly out, you know, but I do recommend it for, for those who need to sort some stuff out through talking. I use different sorts of therapies now that, that work for me where I am now, but so many of us just don't know how to talk about how we really feel. Mm 
And, and that's where your awe comes in awake, well, empowered. You know, what if you ran into somebody in the grocery store and said, how awake do you feel today? (laughs) How well do you feel? How empowered do you feel? You know, without being accusatory, but those are the conversations that people really need to be having. So that brings me to the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over there, Willis Grove, which came out yeah. March 2nd, 2020. What were you doing, March I 2nd? I know, yeah. <laughs> so I was on book tour all over New York, crawling in COVID. Um, but I, I was able to do um, 14 events, and then I had to cancel 38, including a bunch of um, workshops that I was going to be leading as well, all, all over the West Coast. We all have our COVID story. Um, but I will say that that book is so incredibly timely because it's about women coming together to tell their truth, their real story, not the BS, not the, I'm fine, everything's fine, but the actual story of where they are, especially at major crossroads moments. And the way that I, that book came to be was that I was sitting there at a Haven writing retreat here in Montana, where I've lived for 30 years, just marveling once again at how these groups bond. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what is it? about women and my retreats are open to all gender, but usually it's only women that come. We've, we've had people of all gender come, but it's mostly women who come. And I just thought like, how can I capture a message in a book? That's not about a writing retreat, but about the power of story. Yeah. And so there began this whole book that I worked on for eight years and I love this book. It did become a best-selling book, which makes me really happy. And the screenplay is being chopped around right now. Like for Willa, like the book comes out during a global pandemic and screenplay comes out during, you know, a major actors and writers strike, which is very much needed, but it's just, it's just funny. She'll find her way. But I thought, what if I took four women who all have very relatable major crossroads moments in their lives who are hiding? Mm. and saying they're fine when they're not. And how do I get them together in a very sacred, quiet place like Montana and give them the space to truly tell their stories? And so what they end up doing is talking about like what was supposed to happen, Mm -hmm. what actually happened, and then they can help each other figure out what's next. They're so now what? And um, I loved writing that book. Those characters drove the book. And it's, again, not about a writing retreat, but it is about how to hold space for those true conversations that we need to be having. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's such a a huge part of our growth as a person is to get to that point to speaking your truth and really not letting the BS of everything else outside of you run your life. It's you running your life. And that's where the empowered you know, part of this whole thing comes in. And speaking of that, you mentioned the writing retreats. Let's get into that a little bit. When did the writing retreats come up as uh, an idea for you? And, and where did this all start and and kind of take us through its evolution a little bit? Well, I mean, I can talk all day long about why I think it's important for people to come together and tell their stories. The truth of it is that Haven Writing Retreats was born out of post-divorce reinvention. Mm-hmm. That's the truth of it. Mm-hmm. And um So anybody out there who is in reinvention, instead of looking at how other people have done it or what you think you should do, it's so important to think about like, what is it that you have already? How do you already show up in the world? And I remember just sitting 
not far away from where I'm sitting right now thinking, I'm going to lose my house, my kids' stability. I rarely talk about this, but it's the truth. And I'm, I, I'm not about pretending that it's anything other than that. What do I know how to do that I could show up for without resentment? What can I do that's pure and that would be sustaining and financially helpful. <laughs> and so I I didn't have a job. I mean, even though I'd written a best-selling book, it's it's the rare writer again that makes money off of those book sales. It's usually in the advance and I got a very nice advance for that book because of that modern love essay. Um but it's it's rare for a a, a writer to earn back what you got in an advance. So I was sitting there thinking, what do I know how to do? And I thought, well, I know how to sit down in a chair wherever I am. doesn't have to be fancy. I've worked in closets and eaves for almost 10 years. I wrote on a piece of plywood on top of two sawhorses. Like I, it's a movable feast. It has to be. And, and so I thought, well, how can I mine what I already know how to do? And, and then two of my friends, Danny Shapiro is one, she's a, author. And then another one, Linda Sievertson, and then another friend of mine, Jennifer Shelter, all three of them already led retreats. And they said, you would be perfect for leading writing retreats because you're, you've got a lot of energy. You're an extrovert. You're, you're a born teacher. I've never studied how to teach. I've actually never studied how to write really. And I've learned on the job, like just by doing it. And I think that's in part why I'm good at what I do. Like I can't do numbers, literally can't do numbers. I'm like a fourth grade girl crying over a word problem. But I can, I have the sixth sense about how to put together books and how to teach it. So at that point, I was the best-selling author. And then the success of that crazy essay. So I put it on Facebook. Hey, anybody want to come on a writing retreat with me in Montana? And in two hours, 24 people signed up. And Hallie, I had no, <laughs> literally, I was like, price point. How do I even do this? How do I do it? I hadn't been on writing retreats. I'd only just with like my small writing group in my Seattle days. So I put it together and that was 2012. And now it's ranked in the top writing retreats in the US. I've got over six programs and over a thousand alums. And I really do know what I'm doing. And I can say this because it's not about me. It's about the program. I designed the program based on really walking the walk. The program holds my clients, I hold the program, and then the people out at the Dancing Spirit Ranch, which is this incredible place on a square mile of land at the foot of Glacier National Park, they hold me. So it's this really healthy symbiosis. And it's turned into the work of my life outside of mothering and writing books. All Things Haven is it's just where I live. I, I love it. I, I'm leading a retreat next week and then another one at the end of September and then another one at the end of October. And I, I literally can't wait to be back in that space again. It, again, it's not about me and that's why I can talk about it like this. Yeah. So tell me what kept you in Montana to do this and stay there and do the writing retreats versus going back home and getting in a safe space or whatever you want to call it. Because Montana serves up a whopping dose of pure living every single day. And like, since we've been on the phone, my neighbor texted me uh, and there's a bear running around. <laughs> right now. And uh, you, you notice that I probably looked away for a second. It's because we have like a neighborhood alert. And um, that's not that common, but I mean, every single day, something happens here. 
that teaches me who I really am. And I am very good at, it's not faking, but I know how to put on an armor that is required to be in the city. Because if we didn't have any kind of filter, we would go crazy in a city. And I forget to put that filter. I call it the inner colander, actually, because it's like a nicer way of thinking of it than like an armor. It's like it's got holes in it, that, but I get to choose what comes through and what doesn't. Living here, there's like, like filters don't work. Not for me, at least. And I like that filterless life. And it, it lends itself so well to writing, even though it's harsh here. It's not easy. Like things that almost feel like tricks when I'm in the city or the suburbs just don't fly here. Because at the end of the day, if you're on the side of the road in a ditch in a snowstorm, people are going to stop their truck and help you out. And in the city, you, you can't stop for every person who needs your help. So there's some level of accountability here. A lot of it has to do with the weather and just being on the food chain here. I, yeah. I mean, I, I shouldn't have mentioned bears because it's like bears have, are not interested in us, you know, just if we get in their way. But the fact that that you can't hide from that, like you, you don't take a hike around here without a, a can of bear spray, which is like yeah. big grown up mace, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's why I stay here. And interestingly enough, both of my kids went to college outside of the state. I encouraged them to do so, to live abroad. They both lived in major cities and they both came back and they're both living here. And I, and all of their friends have moved here. A lot of that has to do with COVID too. They were like, hmm, should I be sequestered in San Francisco or on 20 acres in Montana? But I also think with remote work, so many people are moving to places like this. Sadly, nobody who has lived here for a long time can really afford to live here. It's, it's driving up the cost of living. It's actually a real problem that we've got out here in the West. But in terms of why I've stayed here and why my kids have returned here is that you just can't, you can't fake it here. You, it, it requires that you are your true, pure, I hate to say authentic because it's overused, but authentic self. Yeah. Yeah. It's like pure living. This is it. You're getting exactly what you signed up for. And I think what I love about it is that you are exposed, like you said, to all the elements you've got the harshness, you've got the heat, you've got everything. But don't you think that helps you can stay in touch with yourself? Like nature for me is my, it's the best medicine. And it's also a place I can go to be my thoughts and to walk outside your door and see what you see and be in the elements like you are. I think that's just, ugh. I can only imagine what your retreat goers, I'm sure they're probably like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> stunning. Well, you know, there's a line in Willa's Grove at the end that is inspired by, I'm not Willa. And none yeah. of these characters is anyone I know. But I think that they're all of us in different sure. ways. Sure. The character that's Jane, she lives outside of New York City and she's very urban and suburban and very much kind of the way I grew up actually. And she says to Willa, this is like in the last 10 pages, I love who I've been out here in nature. I don't know how I'm going to bring it back to New York and Connecticut. And Willa turns to her and, you know, when you really are writing a character driven book and, and you let the characters drive it, it's like, mm -hmm. oh God, don't say that. Oh my God, she said it. I'm going to get a email, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's so much fun to see where they go. And Willa said to her, Jane, you don't go out in nature. You are nature. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I really believe that. Like you can be nature in an, an elevator in midtown Manhattan. You can be nature wherever you are, because what we know as children is that we see a tree as a child and we, it's like, it's of us. At least in my experience, it was just always, like I used to hide when we'd play like neighborhood hide and seek in a leaf pile. And I would just <laughs> lie there all day long in the leaf pile, like, don't find me. And just like, like looking up, I can still smell those deciduous tree leaves. And I, I just think that we get older and we forget that we really mm-hmm. aren't any different than when I see your your posts on Instagram or Facebook of your retreats and the women that come out there. It just looks like you've got a set of women that have like opened up and found themselves. The smiles are so big that <laughs> you can just almost see the lightness of them after they're done because of what they've been able to do in that kind of space. I just think it's phenomenal. I'm so uh in awe of that you do this work. And I'm sure a privilege for you to, to be able to be this for other women and, and whoever comes to the retreat. But I just think it's such a special thing. I think location is huge because it also um, allows it to be a, less of a distraction and just letting you be in the space. And like a lot of books, the setting is a lot of times the character, a, a character in the story. And I feel like your setting is like a big warm hug for people to come out there and strip away all the stuff where they, they came with and to be in that amazing space to just let themselves be who they are. And I think you've, you've created this amazing opportunity for people. And you know what? I've led Haven in cities, in hotels, in resorts, in retreat centers. There's nothing like this place where I lead it, the Dancing Spirit Ranch. It's not open to the public. Well, they've got one part of their property that is, but it's a square mile of land and it's truly a family compound. And they've built this one section of it basically as historic preservation, all these old barns and a one-room schoolhouse homesteading buildings that would have otherwise been raised. And they realized this is this is actually a retreat center, but because it's their land, they're pretty exclusive about who they let onto the land. And, you know, those retreat facilitators need to make sure that those groups are going to be fully respectful of, of that land. And so I'm their top client. I lead seven or eight retreats a year. And it's just us on a square mile of land. And most of the food we eat is is either locally sourced or grown on the property. There are eight retreaters plus me staying out there and then about as many people taking care of us. And then you've got a square mile of Montana land to walk around in. So that's something that's also really pure about the whole thing. It's not about me. The people who come really want it. And they're at all different stages of their writing. Some people who come don't ever want to get published. They simply want to find their voice. Other people are absolutely committed to doing all my programs and hopefully following a book all the way to the end with good boundaries and where appropriate. I think the main thing is that the people who come to do this work know that they want this on whatever level. And so my programs simply meet people where they need to be met. And that's the beauty of it. I can't wait to be back in it next week. I don't have a retreat until March, but a lot of people book like six months to a year in advance so that they can set their sights on it. And then I can also help people beforehand. If, they're, if they've signed up for Haven, I can actually ethically work with them beforehand if they want to put together a project. But what I love about that program is that, again, it it you do not have to be a writer to come. Just anybody who's listening to this, anybody who follows you, 
is a seeker. Mm. That's what it really takes to yeah. write. I was going to ask you, who is your ideal client or who, who are the people that, you know, if, if there's someone that's out there listening and wants to come, who would you recommend? And you just said it, they're a seeker. They're a seeker of themselves. They're a seeker of their voice. They're a seeker of words, uh, community. I think it's kind of all those things, it seems like. Am I, am I hitting the right points there? Yeah. And then the, that's why I've got all these other programs too. It, it, it was never that I meant to do any of this. I, I find like in life, for anybody out there who's creating their life, we all are, it's almost like pay attention to the stuff that just happens. It's like so often we just bash our heads on the door that we think we have to open and that we are told we have to have open. And we're just so used to that the bruise and the blood. But what if we just like looked over here and saw that there's a door that's wide open and it's a beautiful field full of wildflowers and mountain bluebirds. And why do we think, no, that's too easy. Need to keep bashing over and over. So um, I guess part of what I see in the people who come and I, you know, I vet people, you can't just sign up. And by the way, like, be careful, just don't just sign up for a writing retreat. It definitely has to be safe. And I spend an hour plus on the phone with every single person who's interested in coming, whether yeah. they come or not. And I, they have to be invited into the program because it needs to be safe. But over the years, people would do Haven 1, and then they would want more. And so then Haven 2 started, which is, you have to be an alum of the first program. And committed to writing a book. That's very different than Haven 1. It's a completely different experience. And then Haven 3 is when I become people's editors. And so it's like a non-academic MFA program. But the thing that people need to have, no matter what, goes back to your questioning about why to write in the first place. And I said earlier, I call us word wanderers. It's like wandering in your words, wandering in your wonder. And and that's just the the willingness to wander in it, especially if you're scared. Yeah. Yeah. And to align yourself with a facilitator that you can trust. Yeah. That's huge. So I have very, very good boundaries with my clients and they appreciate that. So like the first night at Haven, I set up some really excellent boundaries. And that just keeps it safe. I'm not affiliated with any institution. And I think that actually helps me because I teach from the inside out. People learn from the inside out. And again, it's not about me. People come out of that experience just like, can't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> I really yeah. did find my voice. Yeah, that's awesome. And what's unique about it and what's surprising about it and what's essential about it. And the world doesn't necessarily hold the mirror up to that but you get to be in Montana for five days. It feels like a month yeah. um, with a bunch of people you would never meet in your normal life, feeling so safe and nourished and held and inspired. I mean, it's priceless. Yeah. I, I would do anything. There's no one else leading this kind of retreat out there. There are other people leading great retreats, but this one is, it's really specific to what I know how to deliver. And that is uh, craft instruction um, community, like you were saying, one-on-one -on -one help, and then continued programs. So you said that the you've got a couple coming up. So those are obviously all booked. If people want to book a, a time with you to do the retreats, how far in advance should they do this? Well, like I said, a lot of people book six months to a year beforehand. Okay. 
well, they have to be accepted into the program. And then right. once they are, then once they put down their deposit, then I can ethically work with people. So I've got people signed up for March uh, and they're on my editorial calendar for November. Okay. And so then we can work together over the uh, the winter because people book so far in advance. I thought, you know, they need support now. So my 2024 calendar, every year it's the same. It's like one in March, one in May, two in September, one in October, and sometimes one in November. So cool. Yeah. com. You can learn all about Haven and all the stuff I do over there. And then you can contact me through the contact tab on my website to set up a phone call. And then we just jump on the phone and talk. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, what's one thing right now that's allowing you to feel awake, well, and empowered? Something that you're recently experienced or doing? It's wandering around in the woods. Mm. Every single time I wander around in the woods, something happens. Yeah every time. And it's not like, you, it's not like you have to go to the top of the mountain peak for that to happen. Yeah. So the woods can be in your backyard, yep. down the street, but something that's not manufactured, like don't look at your whatever thing that tells you how many steps and, you know, try not to listen to, I know this is a podcast, but maybe not have headphones on and actually just receive life. Like when you were a little girl or a little yes. boy, like I just, to me, that's getting off trail. Yeah. Like when we get off this call, that's what I'm doing. My dogs have been barking. Hopefully you guys haven't heard that. Sorry. That's, right. that's okay. But, um, and I am just going to grab them and just go wander yeah. around. And then also to find a place to sit in it, mm. like a sit spot, like a stump or like not a bench necessarily, but just like some place yeah. that's beckoning you sit down and be quiet and just pay attention. Yeah. There's a whole world happening around us when we stop. Yeah. So I think that's where my awe lies. Yeah. I love that. Cause I, I think that's something that I, I've mentioned this to my husband many times because like, we're driving through the mountains and I'm like, if we just stopped for five minutes, because we're always looking for animals on the side of the road and all like up in the mountains, if we just stopped for five minutes and just sat in quiet and silence and just looked, I guarantee we're going to find the thing we were looking for, but it just takes us to stop moving, being in the silence and just observe. And I think when we do that, so many amazing things. You see butterflies migrate. You see now the elk walks out of the the woods. You see this cute little gecko running down the trail, yeah. like whatever that is. And that's in itself amazing. And that's the important part of being awake, being very mindful and being very uh, just observant of life in general. And you're going to see amazing things. Oh my Thanks. gosh. Well, I thank you so much for doing this with me. We talked briefly when I was looking at coming out to the retreat, but we get the same kind of stuff. And I just appreciate all that you put out in the world. And uh, I can appreciate what you do for others. And I just want to make sure that people knew of you and your story. And I think what you're doing is uh, so helpful for so many people. So I just want to make sure that people knew about you and how you're living your life is just, it's so admirable. And I'm, I'm very proud to, to call you a friend uh, out there in the, the writing world. So I just, I look forward to seeing what happens next for you. I'm going to put all this stuff in the show notes of how to get a hold of you, your website, all that kind of good stuff. But other than that, I just thank you so much for doing this with me. Welcome, kindred yeah. sister. Well, I'll see you out there uh, in the, the writer's sphere and uh, we'll be hopefully connecting even more in the future. So thank you so mm -hmm. much again. Thanks, Hallie. All right. Have a great day, hon. You too. 
Thank you again for being here. I am so grateful for your time. And if you liked what you heard, please head to where you listen to podcasts, rate and review so we can be found by other people. Please share on Instagram, your social media channels, wherever else you go so we can reach as many people as possible so they can meet these amazing women and hear these conversations. If you'd like to connect further, you can find me over at my website at halliesawyer.com or on Instagram. I'm usually going to be at uh, Hallie underscore Sawyer or The Odd Life, which is this podcast specific Instagram account. All right. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you soon.